Good morning, OCC. I'm so glad to be with you and to Garland and Louisville and Prosper and Dallas and to South Florida, if you're out there watching. Um, yeah, y'all, for real, clap it up for South Florida. Um, we don't know what the Lord is up to out there, and uh, we got to be there a couple of days ago, just this past weekend. We're still in the weekend, so literally a couple of days ago, um, the Lord just kind of gave uh, Pastor Conway a heart to do a pop-up there in South Florida. And, you know, we were ready. We had our church planters hats on. We were ready to come in there and preach and sing to six people because that's what we, we have done it before. We don't need a packed house. We started with our 12. And so we were excited and we got up in there, y'all, and there was over 100 people. We were pulling out chairs. I mean, do not despise the days of small things. And uh, it was just amazing. It wasn't just the number of people that were there because we don't know anyone there. It was who was there. I, I don't even have time to go into it, but let me tell you, at the end when we started talking to people who were in the room, it was like five or six families who not only used to live in Plano, used to be at one community church. And somehow or another, two months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago, five years ago, ended up in this part of South Florida. And so they were like, oh my gosh, we've been asking God to do something here. And it was craziness, the stories that were in the room. And so uh, when you are doubting what God is asking you to do, you go in there with all that you got. It don't matter who shows up, God will bring stories that will blow your mind. And he does it that way so that when things grow and when things thrive, you don't even get tempted to take the credit. He does it in such a way where it has to be the glory of God. And so uh, be in prayer for us as we figure out uh, what we're going to do in South Florida, because certainly the Lord is making a path for us there. So. I'm excited for that. It was good to, to see those people. So we were been all over, been all over the country and now back home. And so I'm glad to be with you this morning. Now, I'm curious because I know one community church has a lot of Texas transplants. How many of y'all are not from Texas? I'm just curious. Okay, you don't have to shout it out. It's not a, it's not a point of cheering, okay? <laughs> that is most of the people in the room. I am from Texas. I'm from Dallas. And it's funny because people, Dallas, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So people act like, like nobody's from Texas. So every time I meet people and they're like, oh, where are you from? Especially out here. And I'm like, Dallas, oh, you from Texas? <laughs> yes. Yes. Babies are born here every day. And, <laughs> and some people stay. So yes, I'm from Texas. But what's interesting is I can tell who is from the Dallas area and who is not. Because when it comes to where you live your life, Y'all think anything south of 635 is far, right? So y'all like, oh, where is it? Oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of far. But people from Dallas know that all the good stuff is south of 635. And so we know if you want good restaurants, you want the arts, you want the beauty of the old city, you got to be in Oak Cliff. You got to be downtown. You got to be in Deep Ellum. If you want to eat after 845 at night, you cannot fool around with Collin County. They are closing the kitchen at 6.20. You cannot it, be hungry at 10 o'clock. I am sorry, because everybody is home with their kids. If you want a good meal, and it's one in the morning, you're a night owl, go to Dallas. Somebody is opening at 10, and they like, we got the whole full menu, the whole kitchen. You want good music, you want the beauty of the arts, but here's what comes with Dallas, okay? So it's not all nice and shiny. I know y'all love Preston and Custer and 121. Everything in Dallas is not six lanes and newly paved and nice and shiny. 
If you go, if you go some of those streets in Dallas, your suspension better be right on your car, okay? Because we're talking about the old, the streets that are hundreds of years old with the trees that have stored it. Everything out of here is a sapling. We don't know what a tree is. Dallas has shade trees. Okay, you can park your car on the street and have natural shade because the tree's been around longer than your great-grandmother, right? These are, these are established routes, but you cannot just go down the streets any kind of way because there's some rough streets down there. Like, they're broken up because they're old. Dallas uh, inner city urban areas are always under construction, right? Things are always changing. And so it's an interesting mix. It's not like out in, in suburban areas where every house kind of looks the same and all the streets look the same. If you ride down the streets of Dallas in the inner city, uh, in the urban areas, Oak Cliff and Bishop Arts, what you'll start to see is a mix, okay? You can see uh, the old and the new. You'll see like brand new condos and then a, an older house that you probably like, this was probably original. And then you'll see something else that looks kind of renovated. And then you might see an empty lot, like somebody just tore something down right here. And then you'll see something that's under construction. Like it's always things happening in the city because space is limited. And so in order to rebuild, they can't just go somewhere new. They have to tear down. So when you look at those things, you're like, okay, everything is not nice and shiny. And how does it get here? How do you get to that point where you see the brand new restaurant and the new apartment buildings because the area is being gentrified? Well, let me tell you, before you get to that nice and shiny, it's not like out in suburban areas where you just pick a piece of land and start building. When you're in the inner city, before you build anything, you have to tear down something because there's not this unlimited amount of space. And the trick of it is, if you know anything about development or, or design or engineering, the demolition piece is trickier than the design piece. See, design is done somewhere in isolation. You can sit in a room and draw out the design, but the demolition is the work that has to be done to tear down the old before the new can be built. And there's a lot of planning that goes into demolition. You got to block off the area. You don't want to disrupt the things that are around you. You got to make sure the street is still safe to drive. If you know anything about demolition explosives, you have to place them strategically so you don't blow up the block. You just demolish your building. Hazmat, you got to make sure the air is not going to be toxic after you do that. You have to then go clear all the rubble. You have to bring in heavy machinery in these very narrow places, try to clear out the rubble, try to lay out, uh, make the ground level again. Then you can start laying a foundation and building upon that but you have to tear it down first and I think the challenge for many of us in the Christian life is that we love building the new thing we love to come to church and get the addition we want all the new instructions be a better spouse handle your money better be kinder be wiser have a better family be a better parent be a better employee we love the building of the new man but we are not about the business of tearing down the things of the old man and if I'm going to walk the way the Lord has asked me to walk, I can't just live in addition. I have to also live in subtraction. Because if you look at the rhythm, the voice, the cadence of the scriptures, very often we're called to put away before we put on. We're called to flee something before we run to something. So if you get stuck in this Christian life, you might find yourself frustrated because you've got this list of all the new things you need to be doing. And you're building, 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 adding, 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 and you're wondering why there's no change. Because you're building on top of a faulty foundation. God says you have to tear up some things before you build new. There's things that have to be broken up before we can build. 
And we get to see a perfect example of this in the life of King Josiah. That's who we're going to look at today. Now, this is the Old Testament, so hopefully you have your Bible. If not, you'll have to try to listen like they did back in the Old Testament, because I know some of y'all are New Testament saints. You want that one verse that's going to change your life. You can put it on a T-shirt, and you're like, this is what it is. You know, be anxious for nothing. That's not how the Old Testament is set up. The Old Testament is like, you need to read seven chapters to understand this person's life. And so we're going to try to go through two chapters in 2 Kings very quickly so you can understand the life of King Josiah. Why him? Because he was a man who lived after the heart of the Lord, and he was known as a rebuilder. He was a reformer. He was one of the few kings that was about the business of rebuilding the temple of God. And so there's a lot that we can learn from him. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we'll start there. Verse 1 actually gives us our first lesson from the life of Josiah. Verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 22 says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Eight. Y'all say eight. eight. This is not like biblical numerology where eight means 22. No, he was eight. He was eight. He had been alive eight years. And so I want you to picture in your mind like a third grader. I mean, mine is 10, and I just want him to clean up his room, you know. So think eight years old, he is now on the throne. He's the king. Now, it wasn't a total anomaly. Sometimes you had young kings. King Joash, before Josiah, actually took the throne at age seven. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, took the throne at age 10. But this was really unusual to have something like this, and this man was known to have a heart for the Lord. So the first lesson we see right out the gate in Josiah's life is that age does not determine your assignment. Age does not determine your assignment. See, the Lord does things in timing that doesn't always make sense to us. The thing that may seem premature to you is providential to God. Sometimes we find ourselves sitting at tables, holding positions that everybody else around us has way more experience and seems like they earned their spot here. And somehow we landed here and we're like, God, how in the world did I get to this spot? How did I get this promotion? Why am I in this room? Because the age doesn't determine the assignment. Some of you might be in a later season in life, and the real American dream is not about building your business. The real American dream is retirement, okay? Because we're trying to figure out how long must I work so that I can stop working but still live like I'm working. (laughs) The real American dream is like, when do I get to stop working and still have an income? My money is somewhere working for me. That's so American. The rest of the world is trying to survive. We're trying to not work and still have income. But that's the real American dream. So what happens is our life can follow these kind of man-made timelines. Here's what should be happening at this age. But if you think that age determines the assignment, then you won't be open to what God might be doing, even in your later season of life. He might be calling you to something new. He might be calling you to start something, to create something. And y'all like, "Uh uh-uh, God, I'm in coasting years. I'm in travel vacation years. I'm in cruise years. And he's like, no, no, I want you to create something. Because age doesn't determine the assignment. I have a friend of mine who's 49 years old, single, never been married, and no kids. And the Lord has burdened her heart to be a foster parent. And so now she's got an influx of infants and toddlers. Because she is being a safe place for those babies while their families are being rebuilt. But if you have a closed door, because you're like, "Mm mm-mm, God, I'm 50. That's it. I'm not doing nothing new. You might miss what he's asked you to do. But King Josiah shows us that age does not determine our assignment. 
His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we're going in already with this young king who is about to really make a mark in the history of mankind. In verse 2, we see the second lesson from Josiah. It says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in all the way of David, his father. Some of your versions may say entirely or completely, but he walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, this was the indication of righteousness, because when a person didn't turn to the left or to the right, that was an indication that they walked righteously. If you look in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1, and the Lord says, be strong and courageous. Don't waver from this book of law. Don't turn to the left or to the right. I'll be with you, right? Like this was the evidence as the person was walking the straight and narrow path. But Josiah really didn't have any heritage that set him up for that. This was a decision. This was a decision that Josiah made. So the second thing we see in Josiah's life is the way you walk is up to you. The second lesson we see in Josiah's life, the way you walk is up to you. Here's how I know that to be true. Because Josiah's father, Amon, 2 Kings 21, says Amon was 21 years old and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, he took the throne at 22 years old and it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out. Now, Hezekiah was his great-great-grandfather, and Hezekiah did what was right, but what happened was Josiah was wedged in the middle of a lineage of evil men. And so when the Bible says he did what was right, he walked in the way according to his father, David, they're not talking about immediate bloodline, even though he was in the bloodline of David. In this particular passage, David is a type of Christ. Y'all, that just means a foreshadowing of Jesus that was to come. Joshua was a type of Christ. Abraham was a type of Christ. The temple was a type of Christ. The Bible in the Old Testament gives us all these little foreshadows, these little pointers that say the Messiah is coming. And so you have Davidic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. So the covenant of David was the standard Josiah decided to follow. That's why it says it walked in the way of, he walked in the way of his father, David. Now, this idea that the way you walk is up to you, y'all, that's critical. Because this says it don't matter where you came from, you get to decide how you're going to walk. You don't have to be bound by whatever generational heritage you have inherited. You get to make a decision right now how I'm going to live for the Lord. Because Josiah didn't have a good heritage. He had a trifling father and a trifling grandfather. So the last two generations, had he followed in their steps, he would have not been known for what he was known for. But we get so caught up sometimes in the weight of generational cycles. We do. And the enemy uses that as a tool of distraction. He wants you to be so focused on not being your father, so focused on not being your mother, being better than where you came from. And so then you walk around and your whole life's mission is to overcome that pain and say, well, at least I stayed with my family. At least we stayed married. At least I raised my kids. At least we stayed employed. At least we didn't struggle with addiction. At least we went to college. At least, at least. And so what happens is you've given yourself a very low bar for life. Because you just need to do them three things your parents didn't do well, and you're going to walk around congratulating yourself. And God is saying, but there's 87 things that I asked you to do. They have nothing to do with your parents, and you have ignored them because the pain has become your purpose. You said, I just need to not be like them, and then I'll be okay. 
And we all need somebody to be better than. But what happens is your walk is now driven by past dysfunctionality. Josiah said, it don't even matter what Amon did and what Manasseh did. I'm walking in the lineage of my father, David. He's the ultimate standard. So for us, now that Jesus has come instead of David, we have Christ. So it don't matter what my parents did, what my grandparents did. I walk in the way of my father, Jesus. That's the way I walk. And let me tell you, when I focus on imitating Christ, I don't have to worry about breaking generational curses. It's going to come with the territory. When I focus on living like Jesus, everything else that would seek to bind me generationally is going to be broken. That doesn't have to be my life's mission. I determine the way I walk. The way you walk is up to you. Psalm 1-1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers because the blessed man, the blessed woman, determines the way they walk. Here we see Josiah now moving to action. He, in the 18th year, the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 3, in the 18th year, so 10 years have passed because he took the throne at 8. He's like out of high school now. <laughs> so he's in his 20s. That would be like college age for some of us. 26. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the action starts. So the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord. So he sends his secretary up to the temple, up to the church, and he says, go up to Hilkiah the priest so he can count the money that's been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. So now this is a big shift because Josiah is like, okay, I'm 26. It's time to be about the business of the Lord. His work of rebuilding the temple is about to begin. And so he goes and has uh, his secretary and the high priest there. They go and they find the money that's been collected so they can give it to the people because it takes money. Even back then, it took money to build the temple. And so in verse 6, it says, Hokiah the high priest says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hokiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, the book of the law here is not just the Ten Commandments. This is the book of the law of Moses, all of the scriptures, and maybe even some additional books. But what is interesting here is that Hilkiah and Shaphan, they're trying to get the money together to give to the people. So they can get started about the work of the temple. And as he's digging through this, this place where all the, the money is, kind of like the offering box, at the bottom of that, he finds the book of the law. So the, the, question, the first question that comes up when I'm reading this is like, why did the book of the law have to be found? Why in the house of God did it have to be found? Well, that's because it wasn't front and center. That's because it wasn't central to the business of the temple. The temple was in ruins. The third thing we see here in the life of Josiah is that a buried word will have your life in ruins. A buried word will have your life in ruins. It's no wonder the people could not follow the will of the, the word of the Lord because it was buried. And guess where it was buried? Under the money. Listen, the word of God buried somewhere can't be effective in your life. It's supposed to be front and center. Everything about the business of God hinges on the word of God and especially in the house of God. You shouldn't come in here and have to search hard to find the Word of God. You shouldn't have to go through a lot of stuff to figure out how much is biblically accurate. Is that right? Did they make that up or did God say that? The Word of God is supposed to be central to the house of God and to the people of God. It's so central that it changes who we are just from an encounter with it. Look at verse 11. 
It says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Y'all say tore his clothes. Say tore his clothes. Now, this is important because in the Old Testament, in this particular time, when you tore your clothes, that was a sign of grief. This is what you did when you mourn the loss or the death of someone. I mean, close family member, a child, a friend, a sibling, a parent, they tore their clothes as a sign of grief. So Josiah, King Josiah, young King Josiah, age 26, hears the word read by Hilkiah the priest, read by Shaphan, and then he tears his clothes. He is instantly grieved by how far off the mark the people are from God's standard. Y'all, he's grieved. Do you understand that this is the response that the word of God causes in the person who's seeking the heart of the Lord? And I know we love to come and, and get, have a pep rally and be cheerleaded and you can do it. God has purpose for you. You can be delivered. You can walk victorious. You can shut down your haters. God's going to make you successful. We love that. But the Bible is not about us. And the word that's being taught today in this culture would make you think that God wrote the entire Bible so that you can have a better life. Because every takeaway from every message is how my life is going to be improved upon. The Bible is about God. We have a better life because we align ourselves with God. The Bible reveals the heart of God, which means that as much as it comforts me, it also convicts me. When I go to the Word of God, I walk away realizing I'm not all that. And you know, sometimes we think we're doing good. You're like, oh Lord, I don't cuss. I mean, as much. <laughs> you know, I consume, I consume libations a little less. My clothes have gotten looser. I don't go to that place anymore. My friends are better. We start thinking, you know, we're doing good. I'm serving, volunteering in that life group. Remember? We think we're doing good. But that's because we are looking at the behaviors and not the conviction of the word of God. Josiah read this word, and please note this, Josiah did not have a pastor. There wasn't a teacher. There was no props. There was no gathering. There was no lyrics. It was no lights. No explanation. No commentary. No seminary. No training. He just had an encounter with the word of God. And it was enough to shift his heart so significantly that he grieved because he saw the death of righteousness in his culture according to the word of God. Do you, do you understand how we get so tied to all the accoutrements that we've become accustomed to? Like we need the Bible and it needs to be presented in a certain way. And if it's not the certain way, I don't like that the pastor wear tennis shoes. I wish he didn't wear a suit so much. The choir is too loud. The praise team's too soft. The lights are too bright. The parking lot's too full. The parking lot's too empty. The bookstore line is long. I don't like that version. If you're not using KJV, you're not bound for heaven. I don't know what's going on in this church. I mean, all the things we need so that we can find something something else to be responsible for our spiritual growth other than us. And God says, if you just have the word of God, that is enough. It should so shift your heart. It should alter your countenance that you go before God and say, God, how must I be used by you? See, we're looking for excuses. That's why we go from church to church and we scroll from pastor to pastor and service to service because we're talking about I wasn't fed there.
the role of the shepherd of the house is to go before God, prepare a meal, but Sunday dinner cannot be your only meal. The shepherd of the house prepares the meal. The people with the gift, they set the table. The people with gifts, they even serve out the food. But nobody's responsible for picking up the fork and putting the food in your mouth. And if a pastor got up and preached Genesis 1 every day from now until eternity, you should be able to be fed. Because Sunday dinner is not your only meal for the week. If you don't have your own consistent encounter with the word of God, then you begin to hold the people who teach the word of God or the church who honors the word of God as responsible for why you're not growing. Josiah just read, he didn't even have a New Testament. He didn't have a good quick verse as y'all got. He had the Old Testament, the book of the law. He read it and it broke his heart because he was able to see that the people were falling short. The word of God. It stirs up our heart, church. If we don't have direct relationship with everything we know about the word, if it's all coming from somebody else's mouth, that's a problem. Then that means we can't test the spirits. I don't know if what you're saying is right because all I know is what you're saying. I need to know the word of God. That's where the heart change happens. People come to Jesus Christ not because you quoted your favorite teacher. It's because you taught them the word of God. And so Josiah shows us that even at a young age, without all of the extras, the accessories, the commentary and seminaries and the help, that the word of God is enough. And when we encounter how we fall short of the mark, it's not condemnation. God's not trying to make you feel bad. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're safe, you're secure in Christ. He's like, but I need you to be convicted. I need you to understand that what you're living and what you're seeing is different than what I want. Ephesians 4 says the spirit is grieved when we live in sin. So we should be grieved when we live in sin. Whether it's you or what you see, it doesn't matter. But Josiah's heart was heavy, y'all, because he saw the word of the Lord being buried, not being active in the life of his culture. The Lord says in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, my word will not return empty. It will accomplish the purpose that it was sent out for. So if it's not accomplishing the purpose in our lives, it could just be that our hearts are rocky soil that Jesus talks about in Matthew 15. It's not the word's fault. It's not the presentation of the word. It's not all the other things. It's not your app's fault. It's not your Bible's fault. It's the, it's the heart that has to receive this soul. And here's, so Josiah hears this, and then he's compelled to take action, because guess what? Conviction requires action. James 1 says, you can't just be a hearer of the word. You have to be a doer of the word. This is not about notes. It's about being made new. It's not about walking out saying, that was good. And people are like, why was it good? I don't know. It was just good. Like... Where is the life change? We're supposed to be contemplative, thinking about it. Every message is not going to end in a pep rally. Every message is not going to end in a lap and a high five and like, look at God. Yes, God did it. But sometimes you sit in the quiet reflection of your soul and say, God, how can I be more like you? Lord, what did I learn about you today? What did you reveal to me about yourself? So then that conviction requires action. That's the next thing we learn in Josiah. Because it says now in verse 12, the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, go inquire of the Lord for me. 
and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. Because Josiah was like, listen, this thing has torn me up. We need more information. Now, Jesus has come in now, so we don't need a high priest anymore. But here in the Old Testament, before Christ was incarnate on the earth, Hilkiah, the high priest, he said, I need you to go to the temple. I need you to go talk to somebody so we can understand what we're supposed to do with this word. And by the way, look at Josiah. Not just for me. He says, for all the people and for Judah. Because we don't take selfish approach to Christianity. Like, what is this going to do in my life, and how is God going to use me in the life of others? So he goes and inquires because we need to take action when we're convicted. And so in verse, 10, verse 14, it says they went to Huldah the prophetess. Yeah. It's a whole word that they went to a woman right there, but we, that's not the point of the message. It's a whole word right there, y'all, because Jeremiah the prophet, Zephaniah, they were alive at this time. Yeah. And they went to Huldah the prophetess. She was about her father's business. And it wasn't because she bought into this move the enemy that you got to be feminist and that you got to be women only, female only. You got to diminish men. You got to just be your own thing so you can be used greatly. Hold to the prophetess. It says she was the wife of Shalom. She was somebody's wife. So here she is walking in her giftedness, still yielded to a husband, still submitted to headship. Because the enemy wants women to think they can't be great if they're attached to a man. Or if they are attached, then he must understand that he plays second fiddle. Don't compete. You got to promote me. We got to be. Listen, there is a way that God uses our giftedness and keeps it in the order of creation. Do you understand that Huldah had a special, unique spiritual capacity? She was a prophetess. That means she heard from the Lord and she gave truth on behalf of the Lord. Shalom, it says, was a keeper of the wardrobe. He had an important job too. He maintained all the king's clothing. He was in the king's inner circle. Huldah was in the king's inner circle, but they had two separate gifts. Now, if Huldah had said, I got to marry a man who has spiritual gifts like me she might not have got married she might be still somewhere waiting on somebody else to be a prophet that she could marry but sometimes the prophetess marries the keeper of the wardrobe and God says just because I use you differently doesn't mean that one is better than the other this is a power couple right here right that this is a woman who has a unique capacity but she didn't lord it over her husband because she had the role of a wife so you got this couple, y'all. This is God honoring women, even in the Old Testament. God has always honored women the way he's honored men. So now you have this power couple working together, and Josiah and all the men are like, go talk to Huldah. She knows the tea. Huldah knows. And I'm going to tell you how you know Huldah knows, because Huldah speaks with these words. Thus says the Lord. Prophets today are like, thus says me. <laughs> Here's what I think. Here's what the Lord told me. And I'm like, did he? Where? Y'all need to question some of these prophecies we got going on. Stuff that make you feel good. Stuff that's promising things. Listen, the prophets in the Bible, they were not bringing unicorn and sunshine. These prophets were like, y'all are living foul. The Lord is coming. You, you are in trouble. Here is what the Lord wants, you know, or here is something that God is asking you to do that's not comfortable for you right now. And God is not ever just a God of condemnation. He may give you warning. He may give you a prophecy that something is coming, consequences, but there's always hope. In Jeremiah 29, he says, you're going to stay in Babylon for seven years. I want you to live. I want you to grow. I want you to plant houses, but I know the plans I have for you. Always there's hope. And so Huldah does the same thing. And we see in her response to Hilkiah, the high priest, she says to him in verse 15, 1 Kings chapter 22, she says, thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel. Ooh, thus says the Lord. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods, that they may provoke my anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place. It will not be quenched. So Huldah is like, happy Tuesday. <laughs> but <laughs> Okay, so I know why the king sent you. And tell him that what he read in the book of law is right. The Lord is going to bring the wrath for the unrighteousness, for the idolatry. But here is the hope. In verse 16, in verse 18, it says, But to the king of Judah, this is Huldah still prophesying, Thus shall you say to him, because your heart was penitent or tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. Remember, Josiah tore his clothes in grief. You tore, this is the Lord saying, because you were humble, because you were penitent, because you tore your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, verse 20, your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. Here is the fifth lesson from the life of Josiah. The condition of our heart causes the Lord to hear us. He says, because you have humbled your heart, because you tore your clothes. He's saying, Josiah, your heart breaks for what my heart breaks. I got you. You know what? Consequences are coming, but I am going to hold back my punishment so that you don't have to see it in your lifetime. I am going to wait until you are taken from this earth to rain down my wrath on those who've been unfaithful. Why? Because you're humble. Because your heart breaks for what my heart breaks for. This is why I hear you. Some of us are wondering why the Lord is not responding, why we're not hearing the Lord, and it could be that our pride is in the way. The Lord says, you do you if you got it together like that. That's the new version of God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. That's in the word. And so when our pride, our self-sufficiency, our sense of I got this, I'm only going to go to God in a crisis, we wonder why there's a disconnect. But he inclines himself to the humble. I draw near to the brokenhearted, right? It's a broken and contrite spirit that is sacrifice and worship to me. So it's because of the humility of this king that God says, I hear you and I'm going to spare you. So it could not just, it might not just be that you need stronger prayers or longer prayers or lighter prayers. It could be, Lord, can you show me where I'm prideful? Because God don't do competition, y'all. He does not. Lord, I need you to show me where I need to be humble, where I need to be broken so that I can hear from you and you can hear from me. Y'all, humility is everything. And the more that you have overcome in your life, if you came from a tough background or you've had to overcome a lot of things in your life, the harder it is going to be to be humble. Because you're like, look what I had to overcome. They said I couldn't do it. This is what my house was like. All the odds were against me. And then you start to have a sense of subtle self-sufficiency. And it works against the humility that the Lord leans toward. That's why he says in 2 Chronicles, if my people who were called by my name would humble themselves and pray, then I'll heal their land, then I'll hear them. He says, I can't, I can't work with pride. I'm not going to break down the wall of your self-sufficiency. Yahweh, Jehovah, is the only self-existent one. He says, if you want relationship with me, you have to be yielded to the fact that you need me. You do nothing apart from me. Humility is not just a, oh, I'm out here killing it. Oh, glory to God. 
All glory to God. Mm -mm. Humility is a heart that says, I know that on any given day, the Lord may shut down what I'm doing. That just because I did well yesterday don't mean I'm doing well today. I know that at any moment, the Lord might shut my mouth, take my gift, shut down this talent, and he can redirect it for his glory. I know that every good thing that comes in my life had nothing to do with my strategy, but the grace and the glory of God. And when people ask me about it, before I get into my personal plans, I'm going to praise the Lord, the Jehovah, who put me in the position to begin with. I'm going to hold it all loosely because it's for his glory. And should he not get glory out of what I'm doing anymore, I'll be willing to change it immediately. The humility, the posture that convicted Josiah is how the Lord hears us. And now as we come to the end of Josiah's reign and ultimately his life, in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, then we see the action, y'all, because Josiah is like, okay, it's time to get busy. And he starts by sharing this word with the people. Verse 1, chapter 23 of 2 Kings says, Then the king sent all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. They were gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house. Because guess what? He was convicted. He's like, oh, y'all about to be convicted. We about to all have this word. This thing tore me up. And so if I'm going to lead, this is what I'm going to start with. Here is the point. Number six, we influence from our own intimacy. You influence from your own intimacy. Listen, we've all been in churches and seen somebody kill a song and you don't feel like there's no spirit in there. Somebody can be a good speaker and kill a sermon. And you're like, but where's the spirit of God? And then you find people who may have an average skill or average talent. You walk out and there is life change. Because the influence doesn't come from the gift. This is the problem with our culture, y'all. Social media will make you think that influence comes from charisma. It comes from gifts. It comes from attractiveness. It comes from appeal. But God says just because you have more followers don't mean you have more faith. The influence comes from intimacy. Are you with me? Because when you're with me, you go before the people, they will know you're with me. It's like Moses coming off of that mountain after being in the presence of the glory of God. His face was shining. And they were like, Moses, you've been somewhere. I've been in the presence of the glory of God. And so Josiah goes before the people and it says, And the king, in verse 5, made a covenant, covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes with all his heart all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. Y'all, this is important because you don't call people into the work of God if they don't first have the heart of God. That's why we got devils building churches. You, you don't call people into the work of God because anybody can be busy. Anybody can bring their talent or their skill, but you need to have the heart of God before you start doing the work of God. So before he puts these people on mission, he said, you need to understand what God's word says. I need you to make a covenant because I am concerned that you are abiding, like John 15 says. I need you connected and committed to Jehovah because the work is going to get hard. And you know your commitment level because when the work gets hard, if you don't have deep roots of faith, you're like, I'm out. I'm going to the easy building. This thing right here is too much. But when the commitment is to the mission of God, the work can't get too hard because you already know what God's calling you to. So he's calling them into covenant. He said, we're going to be in covenant. We're going to be in commitment as we move forward and do this thing together. He's influencing out of his own intimacy. This is a public reading of the word. This is leadership at its best. It's not dominance. It's not persuasion. 
It's inviting somebody else into the intimacy that I found with God. And the people join this covenant. And they need to because the work is about to get hard. Remember I talked about that demolition, what it takes to tear down. Look in 2 Kings 23, starting with verse 14. It says, the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to do all these things. And so from about verse 14 to about 19, and actually a little bit in 24, they're about the business of cleaning out the temple, right? Because we want to rebuild, but just like those houses, just like those roads, remember, there has to be demolition. Things have to be taken out. And so now over these next several verses, uh, Josiah is not playing any games because these were not just idols. They were idols in the temple of the Lord. God says, you can't have any other idols before me. I, I am enough. I, I am to be worshiped alone. And so then you walk through these passages and look what it's saying. He brings out of the temple uh, the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah. In verse 5, he then fires the priest. He deposes the priest who ordained the offerings in the first place. He's like, I'm getting rid of the stuff. I'm getting rid of the people who thought that was okay to bring this stuff in here. He's cleaning house. And he's not just like putting it in storage. He's not putting it to the side. In verse 6, it says, he brought out the Asherah and burned it at the brook of Kidron, beat it to dust, and then cast the dust among the graves of the people. He's like, he is making sure that there is no possible way that this idol will ever find its way in the temple of God again. He is not just repurposing it. He's not putting it to the side. He's not just renaming it in his phone. He is removing the contact. He's breaking the relationship. He's utterly destroying it, and he's scattering the ashes to make sure it's not going to be easy for the flesh to reassemble the idol that it built in the first place. Here, here is the thing, y'all. All of these things he's removing from the temple. He brings out the Asherah. Now, this was a goddess of fortune and happiness. That's not unique to these people in the Old Testament because we idolize fortune and happiness. So much so that we spiritually make it equivalent with God. God wants me to be happy. He wants me to leave this so I can be happy. Now, we're not talking about what it means to have perseverance and endurance. Mm -mm. God wants me to leave this so I can be happy. The evidence of God in my life is when I'm blessed, when I'm successful, when I close on the house, when I get the promotion, when I get accepted to school, when the school is paid for, when that's the evidence, it's success and fortune. It's not that God himself is the blessing and anything else he does is just extra. It's the goddess of success and fortune. So he tears it down, utterly destroys it. In verse seven, he breaks down the houses of male cult prostitutes. Y'all, they weren't even decent enough to be on the corner. They were in the temple. Like, you come to church one day and in the atrium, people just like, you got some free time, you know? You'd be like, what in the world? What in the world? I mean, that's how it was. That's how audacious they were. That's how audacious they were. Because the enemy gets audacious. You know, when you don't stop him at the road, then he come to the parking lot. And you turn the other way and he gets to the door. And then eventually he's in the atrium, then he's in the sanctuary, and you find out, how in the world did this sin get so deep in my heart? Because you didn't stop it when it just had a foothold. You let it get a stronghold. And so then Josiah says, we about to tear it down. And don't think that this was just about sex. These idols of sexuality, our culture still worships sexuality. I'm not talking about just sexual activity. Sexuality. 
Now it's not about activity. It's my identity. I get to assign myself. And it is such a point of worship that if you don't agree with what I believe about sexuality and assignment, we must not worship the same God. That's how you know it's a point of worship. It's tearing down churches and believers because we don't want to disagree. We don't want to be, we don't want to get canceled, but we know what we really believe, but we're trying to be quiet. But the people who don't believe the word of God, they're not quiet. And then we don't know how to say it in love. Then we act crazy. We're not representing Christ well. And so it becomes an idol. People will leave families, leave churches, leave their relationships to maintain what they believe about sexuality. So don't think that this is stuff of the old days. Our culture just finds a way to modernize it. We just evolve it and make it more subtle. Then you're the bad guy if you don't accept it. Well, God is love. Yeah, but he's not that, that soft pat on the back kind of love you think he is all the time. First Corinthians says love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It's not just patient and kind, it's also righteous. And so Josiah is like, absolutely not, it must go. He breaks down the high places where priests had made offerings. He defiles this uh, God of Topeth. Y'all, this God, he tears it down because people were sacrificing their children, taking their sons and daughters to be sacrificed in front of this idol. And y'all might be like, Jay, that's crazy now. I stop at sacrificing children. I know we got issues. But do we really? We don't, we don't sacrifice our children at the idol of sports. We're not willing to give up some things because they need to play select and they got to travel, they got to be here, they got to be at six practices a day and they five. We don't, we don't sacrifice our children at the idol of education because we have so much baggage about how we grew up with education that we need them to be in 52 extracurriculars plus tutoring plus AP plus dual credit. Then you got to apply, then you can't do this, you need community service because you got to do this, you got to succeed. We don't sacrifice our children at the idol of success. We don't tell them they need to be the best and the brightest and always have the best. Buy them things they know they don't deserve. We, we're sacrificing our children at some idols. And then we're going to be mad when they grow up entitled. Oh, they're so entitled. We made them entitled. They don't understand hard work. They didn't have to work. We gave it to them. So this is not stuff of days gone by. You have to ask the Lord, how is this showing up today? Because this idolatry church is still happening. He tears it down. He removes the horses that the kings had dedicated to the sun. He burns the chariots and the altars that the kings of Judah had made. He broke down the pillars. He cut down the ashram. He burned. He sacrificed. He defiled. He shut it all down. Josiah was about the business of cleaning out the house of God. He knew things had to be torn down before the new could be built up. And y'all listen, the work of tearing down idolatry, it's not quick work. You're not gonna leave a service and be like, oh boom, I'm done with that, next. No, it's hard work. And the enemy wants to make you think, you'll never, this'll never go away. You'll never get over this, this'll never be better. He wants you to give up, but we are in a constant state of subtraction and addition. I wanna learn and grow in God, but I also need to uproot what is keeping me from growing in God. I have to constantly ask God, reveal the lies in my heart, reveal the idols, because guess what? This temple that Josiah is cleaning up is no longer the building. First Corinthians six says, we are the temple. We house the Holy Spirit. 
So all of this cleanup has to be internal. Nobody's going to applaud you for dragging out the idol of success. They're not going to applaud you for dragging out the idol of education, dragging out the idol of marriage, dragging out the idol of beauty, dragging out the idol of a home ownership and private school and whatever it is you're aiming for. No one's going to be like, oh, good, I'm glad you don't worship that anymore. No, they're going to say, oh, no, the Lord wants you to have that. And he might want you to have it, but not instead of him. So we have to be committed to the hard work of constant divine demolition. There has to be a divine destruction of the things that keep us from growing in God. It's constant work, y'all. It doesn't go away. Right when you think you're good, something else comes up. Sometimes the demolition is removing the big thing. It's removing the huge debris. And then as we grow and walk in the Lord, we start to go through that thing with a fine-tooth comb. And there's always something. He's like, ooh, that paint's chipping. Ooh, it's pieces of glass on the floor right there. Oh, that door don't quite line up. He starts showing you little things. Because in his grace, he's going to show you what you can handle. You can't even handle your whole self right now. You cannot. He's not. We would just die if we just thought of all the things that we do to disappoint God. He's like, but I love you too much. Just work on this. Then next year, just work on this. That's what he does. But it's a constant removal because we want to be people who worship him authentically. That's the goal. And that's why Josiah's story ends in 2 Kings 23, verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of covenant. And it says in verse 22, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept. All of this work is so that we might be true worshipers. It's not so we can have a great temple. It's not so somebody can be impressed with us. It's because God says in his word that the Lord is searching to and fro for someone who might have a heart that's blameless for him. And then in the New Testament, Jesus has the same message. He talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he says, but the Father is seeking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. So all of this work is so that we might be true worshipers, so that we might actually be able to be a light in this world. We cannot be so consumed with self that we cannot be sent. The question is, are you willing to do the constant work of tearing down so that we can build this new temple? My prayer is that I know we all have seasons of ruin, things get hard, pain and anger, confusion, doubt, all kinds of things threatening us. But the Spirit is faithful. He empowers us. We have the Word of God at our disposal. We have the charge of God in front of us. We have the Son of God as our Redeemer. We have the mission of God as the plan. So my prayer is that we ask God, where do I need to tear down so that you can build up? May God be glorified in the church now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.